Okay, everyone. Thank you for joining. I know it's late, it's 10.30. It's the COVID special that we get to do the classes whenever I'm ready. So l'chaim. Chodesh Adar, you have to be b'simcha, and uh, good days are coming for the Jewish people. In any case, tonight's class was sponsored by Yaakov Kahneman, Rabbi Yaakov Kahneman. This is very special. It's his birthday this week. May Hashem bench him with much bracha mazel and a bracha natzlach and a wonderful good year with infinite blessings and endless, endless simchas and good things, nachas from the children, happiness, parnasa brachav, and you should be able to fulfill his shlichas uh, in spreading Yiddishkeit and in Torah together with his very special wife and family. Much nachas and brachas and only, only good in all aspects, in the spiritual and in the material. Thank you for this um, dedication. I want to also dedicate tonight's class to Mordechai Shlomo, Shlomo Ben Shoshana, a dear friend of mine who's been in the hospital with COVID for a long, for I, I would say pretty long. He, he does incredible work in the Ukraine. There for many years, and now he's in the hospital with COVID. May Hashem send him a complete and total refuah shalema. Take it from a yad mamish. Okay. Um, let's get to it. Also, I think I should dedicate it. Yeah, it's my parents' anniversary, so I'll dedicate it in honor of my father and my mother. May they have only happiness and goodness on infinite, since we want and we expect life to go on forever, as will be discussed in tonight's class, once Mashiach reveals itself, himself, and let it be now. Okay, um, so this week is Parshas Truma, and in Parshas Truma, we learn about the making of the Beis Amigdash, making of the Mishkan. We start with a tabernacle, and then we gradually ascend. Let me just shut this. And then we move on to a Beis Amigdash, to a temple. And it's not a, a, not a permanent Beis Amigdash, but from the temporary temple, we make another temple, and uh, that one doesn't work out all the way as well. It gets destroyed. And eventually, we bring in the third base Amigdash, which is going to last forever, and that's what we're really celebrating. When we read Parshas Truma this week, the, what we are concerned mostly is not with the temple that was, not with the Mishkan that was, but how this applies currently, halacha lamaisa, what we say, uh, in, in our focus and preparation for the third base Amigdash, especially since we've been talking about in last class, last week we spoke about all the number threes. This is a year of number three, so we are all ready for number three. The third Geula and the third Beis Amigdash. Now, um, right in the beginning of the parsha, when it opens up and it says, "Vaydaber Hashem al Moshe," Hashem spoke to Moshe, and Hashem says, "Vayikhuli Truma," you should take for me a Truma. Meis Kaldish. What does it say? Let's start from the beginning. It says, "Vaydaber Hashem al Moshe leema daber abnei Yisrael." Speak to the Jewish people. Vayikhuli. They should take for me Truma, Truma. Every person in his heart will donate to Anyways, it opens up with an appeal. Everybody can give. This is the first Jewish fundraiser. Literally, it's the first Jewish, Jewish people went out of Egypt. Now there's a fund. They were all wealthy. They had a ton of money. They all took out from Egypt. Now, 
uh, as an opportunity to give tzedakah, to what? To build a temple, to build the base Amingdar. And Moshe lists all the things that the, the, the stuff that were required for the building. So right over here already, you have already a right at the beginning, we're already talking about the third base Amigdash. Why? So the Bnei Yisoschar, one of the great Hasidic masters and great Kabbalist and uh, mystic, and his teachings are just phenomenal in the Sefer. Igrid the Kala, it's a special Sefer of his on the Torah. He's no more, more for a Sefer Bnei Yisoschar, but his, this Sefer is on the Torah, and I actually just got it uh, two, three weeks ago, and uh, I'm enjoying myself because it's a phenomenal book and very, 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 very engaging, especially for my kind of uh, Torah that I really like that he says. But in any case, over there, he has a teaching. And uh, he says that right in the first pasuk over here is already indicating the third, the third base Amigdash, the future, because we know what the Medrash tells us that in the current uh, world, in our current situation, meaning our Judaism up till now is only an introduction. It's only a preparation for the real Yiddishkeit, for the real connection to Hashem, which happens when Mashiach comes. The Medrash says that in this world, we only have the Erosin, we only have the betrothal. We know that we got married to God. Judaism is not, just, it's not a religion just. It's that as well, on some level, but... It's a relationship, it's a marriage. Hashem got married to us. As the sages learn out so many things, all the laws of marriage, so many of the ideas of marriage from Har Sinai, because that's the quintessential marriage between God and the Jewish people. In marriage, there's two stages. There's what's called Kedushin and Nisuyin. Kedushin is the first stage of marriage, which affects, Kedushin means the betrothal, which affects a, affects a state of husband and wife um, legally, but they still don't have the, the, the fulfillment of their marriage and that they can live together in, in intimacy and in closeness. Because a betrothal means that, that the woman is acquired to the husband and obviously he's committed to her as well, but in a way that um, they're not permitted yet to live together. It's just that she's excluded from everyone else. She's not allowed to live with anybody else, she's designated to her husband, but then when they finally complete the marriage, it's called the consummation of the marriage, that's the stage called the Nesuyan, which requires a few different things. You go under the chuppah, you say Sheva brachas, you say the seven blessings, that's called Nesuyan. Today's days, it's all done at once, but in the time of uh, the Talmud, and earlier than that, in earlier days of Jewish history, it was in two phases. It was done first, they did the Kedushan, and then many, and then many months later, sometimes even a year later, they would complete the marriage. Between these two stages, technically they're husband and wife, but they are actually forbidden to live together, to be intimate with one, one, one with each other. That's called an Esuyan. So the Midrash tells us that our, our entire Jude, Jewish experience today's days is only the betrothal. At the giving of the, at Har Sinai, at Sinai, God gave us the ring. We became through giving us the Torah. But we haven't really experienced intimacy yet with Hashem. All that is going to start when Mashiach comes. That's when we're going to actually feel the great closeness and the unbelievable delight and pleasure of being in God's, in God's closeness, being attached to Hashem. 
And Hashem will delight in us and we will delight in Him, just like a intimacy is delightful for both the husband and the wife. And as we know, it's the greatest satisfaction, the greatest um, delight. And uh, that means that all of our experiences till now has not been experience. You see, we, we, we were doing the work, we're preparing our marital home. We're making the whole world a, 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 uh, a um, setting, a home, a beautiful garden. And in that garden, we're building a palace in the land of Israel. And through that, God will live amongst the Jewish people. And that, from the extra light radiating within the souls of Israel, it will illuminate and bring incredible pleasure and delight and enlightenment to all the nations. But in a much and infinitely deeper way, will be the intimacy between Hashem and the Jewish people. And when we will study Torah, when we will do the mitzvah, after Mashiach comes, we're going to experience indescribable pleasure and delight. Uh, which obviously, I, I mean, I have to obviously explain this. We're not dealing over here with a physical, um, everything is anthropomorphically speaking, but what we could derive is the pleasure, not the 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 the... The, the 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 physical element that obviously is not is not applying to a relationship with God, but what it is what it is applying with is the pleasure, but not just the pleasure. The pleasure um, exponentially, the pleasure uh, you know a million gazillion infinitely fold of that of the closeness to Hashem. And as I mentioned earlier, it's the pleasure of God as well, because He decided that He wants to have a relationship with the Jewish people, and that's why it says that um, Hashem has not yet had any benefit yet from creation. God created the world for, his, for, for the ultimate union that he would have with Israel and through Israel with the entire world. And that's when he's really going to have pleasure from his creation. That's where it's going to be meaningful to him. Um, we, went, we took a, 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 a wrong step at the first day of creation and we plunged the world into darkness and into impurity. Since then, we're still cleaning up the mess. We haven't finished cleaning up the mess until Mashiach comes. That's when the mess is completed. It's, we've completed cleansing the mess, and now we can start living. So God has not yet had any happy day. That's why the Shlach Kaddish says, a very important idea, that the word Mashiach, which is the word for the Redeemer, which is the Anointed One, is that if you, re, if you unscramble the letters or re-scramble them or re, re, rearrange the letters, you get the word Yismach. Yismach Hashem b'maisa, that God will delight in His creation. It's in the future, it says. Yismach Hashem b'maisa. Hashem never had pleasure from His world. Imagine, He made this magnificent creation. He didn't have true pleasure. I mean, there is a pleasure every time we do a mitzvah, but the truest pleasure that He intended, He hasn't had yet. He hasn't seen nachas from His world yet. God will see the nachas from His world after Mashiach comes, when He will have His closeness with us. And that is hinted to in the marriage in the consummation of the marriage. And that's going to go on forever. Now we, however, do the preparatory work that is necessary. So the B'nai Yisrael says that when we know when a man betrothes a woman, he says, at li. You are hereby betrothed to me. Now the pivotal word over here is the word li, to me. So li is the word that is symbolizing the Kedushin the first stage of the marriage. 
Like it says in the Pasuk, li olam. I have betrothed you, li, to me. Right? li, to me. And he says, and he brings this from the Megala Yamukais. Megala Yamukais was a great Kabbalist, Rav Nassim, I forgot his last name. It was a fascinating Kabbalist. Um, I think uh, uh, 1700s, uh, 17th century Kabbalist. And this, uh, and he writes that the word li symbolizes this marriage, this union. Because he says, the lamid and the yud is the bonding. It's a fascinating idea. The lamid and the yud is the bonding between us and God. He says the lamid is the largest letter of the olive base. And therefore, this is, and it, and, it, and it represents a tower. It towers over all the other letters because it goes up higher than all the other letters. So the Lamed is indicative of God. Migdal, he says, Migdal Oiz Malkoi, the, the great towering being, which is Hashem, the creator of the world. The Yud is the tiniest letter. So it represents the tiny one, which refers to Israel, Knesset Yisrael, the Jewish people, which God says about the Jewish people. You are the smallest of all the nations. And God says, I love you because you're small. Opposites attract. He is super big and we are super small. And we have the, the um, attribute of humility, of smallness. And that much makes God so attracted to us. So the Lamed and the Yud together is the bond between God and us. He also adds, the Lamed um, is really a, is a shape like this. It's got a Vav on the top. And then it's got like a chaf on the bottom. So if you take chaf, which is the bottom, and the vav, chaf vav together is 26. So the lamed is God's name, 26. 26 is the, act, is the, is the um, value, the gematria, the numeric value of God's essential name, the tetragrammaton, the yud ke vav ke shem avaya. So chaf vav, lamed is indicating God. Yud is the Jewish people. So Li is the bond between Hashem and us, but the bond that comes through betrothal. That we become one entity. However, we can't yet enjoy each other's company. We can't yet live together. There is no intimacy between Hashem and the Jewish people. The final intimacy will only be when Mashiach will come, as we mentioned earlier. And that's the other part of our name. You see, in the word Yisrael, you have a Yud and a Lamed. The Yud is the first letter, and the Lamed is the last letter. You got the word Li. That's why Hashem, when He gives us the Torah and He takes us to be His people, He says, Va'atem tiyu Li, and you will be to me. And the Lamed and the Yud from, from the word Yisrael, the first letter and the last letter, that's the li of our marriage with God. But in between the Lamed and the Yud is three letters. The letters are Shin, Resh, Aleph, Yisrael. So Shin, Resh, Aleph are the middle letters. Shin, Resh, Aleph spell the word Rosh or Asher. Right? Asher Kedishanu. Or or the word Asher, like one of the tribes. Or Rosh, 
Reish Alev Shin, which means head. So what's the significance? Rosh, the inside letters, represents the inner element of the, of the marriage. That's the intimacy. Because you see, when a couple get married, the bond between husband and wife is on two levels, according to the mystics. One of them is that the man is extending to the woman an encompassing energy, an external light. And we call it external because it's bigger than the person. It's not, it's not, um, it's not uh, inferior, but it is, it is uh, not perceivable and experienceable by the woman. And therefore it encompasses her. And that's the idea of why we see when a, when a couple get married, at the beginning of the marriage, there is, there is the whole relationship is through encompassing. The woman goes around the man seven times. In other words, she's sharing her makifim with him. And he gives her a ring. And the ring again goes around the finger. And the idea of the ring is an encompassing energy. He's bestowing upon her of his encompassing light. But because it's encompassing, it's an infinite light, it's an energy that's higher than, it's not digestible, it's not um, internalized, you can't internalize it, at least not yet. So that's why it comes to her in a manner of a ring, it's encompassing, it's surrounding her. And that's why there's no intimacy yet, it's just an external energy. But what it really means is that he's bonding with her on a level of essence which is higher than experience. You can't digest it, you can't interpret it, interpret it and that's why you can't, you can't enjoy it yet. But then, after that is established, then there can be an intimacy. And the intimacy is one in which he's giving her a influence, a, a, a hashpa, something to her from his inner being. And that, not from his greater, vast, greater self, but from his inner, inner core, in a way that is able to, that she's able to take it in. In other words, and as explained, we learn it mainly said in the Maimar Lachadoidi, sometimes through the encompassing, well not sometimes, the way it works is through the encompassing energy, the recipient becomes ready to internalize. It opens them up, it, re, it, 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 it causes them to extend themselves and become open to be able to receive and to be able to internalize. Like we say in the Lachadoidi Maimar, that we talk about it, it's the Maimar, that, the discourse that, that every chassan says by his wedding, it's like a teacher sometimes seasons the student by telling them a joke or saying something that kind of you know, relaxes them, gets them comfortable, and then later they can teach a deeper, a deeper teaching. So this internal energy is delivered from husband to wife in an intimacy. And they become totally one in that. So the Bnei Yisachar says that's into doing the word Rosh. In the word Yisrael. Because in the word Yisrael, in the middle, there's the word. And the reason these are the middle letters is because there's the inside of the relationship. The Li, the Lamed, and the Yud is the external part of the relationship. It's the Ormakif, where he's extending to her his external light, surrounding her. That's why it's on the outside. And with us and Hashem, it's the outside light that we received, the giving of the Torah, when we're doing such godly things, but we don't internalize it. We don't really appreciate how awesome Tefillin is. And we really should almost pass out when we put on tefillin. We should be at the verge of dying from pleasure when we're doing when we're studying Torah. That's the way it really should be. We're not we're not because we're we're oblivious to what's going on, because it's washing over us. It's not being internalized. 
That's because we only have the betrothal today. We don't, we're not equipped to be able to receive it, to internalize it. We're only experiencing the Li of Yisrael, not the internal letters, the Asher, the Rosh. Now, what does it have to do with the word Asher? So he says a few ideas. First of all, an intimacy is described in Shira Shirim by the words in the Song of Songs, King Solomon, which is based on this um, romance between Hashem and the Jewish people. It's hinted to in the words, um, Smoiloi, his left hand, tachas l'roishi. When a husband and a wife are getting close to each other, they, they'll, they'll start the intimacy with, a, with, an, with an embrace, with a hug. And that's what it says in Shira Shirim, God's left hand is beneath my head. So that's when Hashem is holding our head and preparing for a closer connection, which later will turn into a kiss and then into an intimacy. So Roish is the head symbolizing this union. But he says something really fascinating. He says, Rosh is 501. Take the Gematria. Resh is 200, Shin is 300, and Aleph is 1, 501. And what does that symbolize? It symbolizes husband and wife becoming totally one. In this sense, God and the Jewish people becoming totally one. Male and female union. Why? Because the man has 248 limbs in his body. The woman, the Gemara talks about it in Mesechtis, um, I think in Mesechtis Erechen. The Talmud talks about how many, oh, Mesechtis Bechoris, I'm sorry. In, the, in, 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 in Tractate Bechores, the Talmud talks about how many um, limbs there is in, on, uh, by a woman. And the Gemara has diff different opinions. But um, the Gemara says uh, 253, 252, the Gemara says with, with Pesach, whatever. The Gemara says it ends up 253. So if you take 248, plus 253 equals 501. So the union between the man and the woman is 501 limbs. In our union with God, that spells the word asher. And maybe that's the reason why when we say make a mitzvah, when we say a mitzvah, we say asher kedishanu. Because through the mitzvah, mitzvahs are called the limbs of God. 248 positive commandments. And when we connect Hashem, 248 of our limbs, 253 of our limbs, because we're the female in the relationship, with the 248 of Hashem's mitzvahs, together it forges the bond for 501. And um, that's Asher. And that's hinted to in the inside letters of Lee. So Lee on the outside is the betrothal. Asher is the internal and the essence of the relationship that is only going to be facilitated in the third temple. Which, by the way, where was the Beis Amigdash built? What's the Beis Amigdash? Our marital home. We, the woman, prepared a place, and then God comes down to dwell in it and unify with Israel. So we know that the temple was made in a threshing field called a Goren. Um, King David bought a Goren, a threshing field from, uh, who was it, the name, the fellow, uh, who, who, um, who sold it to King David. And that later became the hilltop where the Beis Amigdash, um, where the Beis Amigdash was built. Goren is Reish Nun Gimel. 
253. Because that's our facility. That's us facilitating the relationship. God is going to meet and join in an intimacy with the Jewish people. And that's why we also find it by the creating of Mashiach's neshama. When Ruth, Ruth when Rus, the great-great-grandmother, the Moabite woman, who is now going to get married to Boaz, that night when she goes down to uh, bring about this marriage, she goes to the Goren. He's sleeping outside in the field, by the threshing field. And she goes to meet him over there in the Goren because that symbolizes through Mashiach, her grandson is going to be the ultimate and final unity between God and the Jewish people. And that's the significance of the word. But that's 253 is just the Shekhinah, just our limbs in unification and locked in an intimacy with God, it's 501 from the words Asher. So now we go back to B'nai Yisachar says to our parasha. When you read Chumash, you have to read an updated version as it is applying to today. Da'abed el-B'nai Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people. They should take to me Truma the Trumas. He says like this. He says, you know, by the betrothal, the only one of benefits is the woman, not the man. Why? She gets something. She's getting a ring. So she gets something of value. He doesn't, he's only giving. He's not, he's not getting. When they'll have intimacy, so then they're both giving and receiving. So there is a, 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 a uh, there's something of his satisfaction as well. But initially by the giving. That's why God is saying, we're starting the relationship now. We're getting ready. We're not ready yet. It's not going to be yet. The final temple is only going to be later. But right now, Hashem is saying, let's initiate. Let's start the process. Let's start going towards the ultimate. Uh, the ultimate. But let's at least start with a, with a temporary dwelling place, a mishkan, and eventually we'll have a base amigdush, and eventually we're going to have the third temple. That's going to be permanent. So Hashem says, for now, the yikhu they should take, because really, they're giving. Why are they taking? <laughs> this was a, 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 a fundraiser. The Jewish people were asked to give. Yet, they were told the yikhu they're going to take. And everybody, the people, you know, the commentators asked the question. It should say, they should give. So we have the general answer that when you're giving to God, you're really taking. It's your schus, it's your merit, and the, the, the blessings that are going to come, it's much more than what you're giving. That's all true. What does it say? He says, why does it say vayikhu over here? Because at this point of the relationship, we're getting, but God is not having any satisfaction yet. Because as we said earlier, only when Mashiach will come will be Yismach, Hashem will have joy. Till now, it's only preparing us to be able to facilitate Him. In order that we don't blow a fuse from this intimacy, in order that we don't completely die, if we don't completely be blown out from becoming one with God, we need to be seasoned. We need to, we need to, we need to, re, re, um, we need to strengthen ourselves. And this is what the Torah and mitzvahs are. It's all preparing us for this union. So now, but for us, there is a lot of good in that. We get to do mitzvahs and God takes care of us and so on and so forth. So for us, it's vayik, and you know, once a husband really gives the, his wife the ring, he's ready, he's responsible to take care of her. So in this sense, vayikhu, you're taking li, li is the betrothal, as we said earlier, teruma, and that's where he says, me'esk bot, God wants that what? That our intentions should be. That we don't stay with the ring and just have a ring, but that we end up and 
bring the marriage to where it's supposed to be, to live happily ever after in deep love and, and in deep connection to God, which is only going to be after the coming of Mashiach. So that's the conclusion. May kol ish from every person, asher yidvenu liboy, whose heart, that's how the, his heart is donating to asher, to the, deep, to, the deeper, to the deeper intimacy. In other words, our hearts and minds have to be focused to come out from the external part of the name Yisrael and enter into the internal element of the name. The asher, as we spoke earlier, the 501, the intimacy that will be from God. Because only in that is your, donating, your heart is donating to God. In other words, because he adds one little point. He says, really, what does the husband have from the betrothal? Again, he's not getting anything. He's only giving. He has that he, that he has her heart. That she is committed to eventually, when they, will, when they will make it to the next stage, that she's designated to him. She's not going to anybody else. She's designated to him, and she will be intimate with him. And then he will be re- receiving, in not just the giving. So, whoever's heart donates and thinking, what's the donation? Where is our minds and hearts supposed to be through all of our Judaism to get to the asher, to get to the, to, the, to, the, to the intimacy of the relationship? He adds over here that the word libo is, 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 is the essential element of the word libo, which is heart, his heart, is also lamed beis, which is 32, which 32 is, represents the 32 pathways of wisdom that we receive during the, that's where the or makif, the encompassing light that the husband gives to the wife by the chuppah, is from the 32 pathways of chachma, of wisdom. That's why a fascinating thing, there are 32 letters in the statement, good secret for a chasana that I never knew, there are 32 letters in the, in the words that the uh, groom says to the bride under the chuppah. That's it. There's no other conversation under the chuppah between him and her. She's silent the whole time. He says one sentence. Harei at mekudeshes li betabas zu kedas Moshe v'Yisrael. If you count the letters in harei at mekudeshes li, which means you are hereby betrothed to me with this ring, like according to the law of Moses, of Moshe, and the Jewish people, is 32 Hebrew letters. Because he's bestowing upon her from the 32, from the lave, from the 32 um, pathways of wisdom. In any case, now it's only, as we spoke, only Armakif, but our minds have to be that we're waiting for the intimacy. And when we realize that this is just about to happen, this should really get us excited. I'm just showing you over here that the main goal and purpose over here is the third temple. Once we have that out of the way, let's talk about the third temple. In what way? We know the third temple is gonna be the one that's gonna last forever. And that is because the Zohar says God himself is going to build it. And whatever humans do is only temporary. But whatever God does is eternal. Um, that's one reason it's going to last forever. Is it going to have a... Is it going to have a um, durability to last forever for another reason as well? So the Lubavitcher Rebbe in one of his talks in 5752 and I realized today that it was also stated in 57 for, um, 
1989, and then again in 1992. The Rebbe drops a Tremendous chiddush, a bomb, um, cre uh, a creative idea, a new idea. It sounds very, 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 very um, shocking in in Jewish thought, but I'm going to show you today um, some an, another phenomenal uh, source in which says the same, basically the same idea that the Rebbe said that I never knew. In any case, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says that the third base of English in addition to all the spiritual reasons why it's going to last forever, it's also because it's going to be built with steel. In general, we know that you're not allowed to have any steel in the temple. There was no barzel. There was no... Um, uh, in the Mizbeach, in the, in the, on the altar, you weren't even allowed to cut the stones with steel. We read about it in two weeks ago in Parshas Yisro, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments. It says, when you build a, a base, a, 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 an altar, don't build them with cut stones. Stones that were cut, and the reason is because you're not allowed to lift upon them metal. So they actually were cut, the stones. The Gemara talks about them, um, that they could have been cut with the special worm called the Shamir worm, uh, worm, which was able to cut through stone. But it's not allowed to be cut with any metal. That's a particular, a specific prohibition regarding the, regarding the, um, the altar. Now it does not say explicitly in the Torah, in the Chumash, a prohibition in the rest of the temple, in the rest of the base of Mingdosh, from using metal or steel. No prohibition. However, when it describes the building of the of the Beis Hamikdash in um, in Malachim, where it speaks about Shlomo Melach building the Beis Hamikdash, it says over there that that Kolkli Barzel, any uh, metal tools, was not used, was not heard in the temple uh, on the Temple Mount when they were building the Beis Hamikdash. You couldn't hear it at all because there was no steel, no metal that was used. Even in the building, let alone no no metal no metal in the building in the construction itself, but even the instruments and the tools that were being used to build was not metal. Now, how do they cut stones? There, yeah, they did cut stones. Um, so the commentators say that they did it all outside of the area, and they brought the stones already cut into the Temple Mount area. And when they built it, there was no steel, no metal. So it's a very common understanding, and people know that that um, metal is not kosher. Just like you know, in a on a in a dairy side of the kitchen, you can't put a a uh, meat uh, you know a knife that you cut meat. And we know that that you know, and just like we know that certain things are muktzah on Shabbos, simply it's not kosher on Shabbos. I'm sure in the temple, metal is not kosher. The only thing that they used metal. When I say metal, we mean not besides gold and silver, but I'm talking about um, steel. Steel was not allowed to be used in the building of the base of Mingdash. Iron or steel, I'm not exactly sure. Um, obviously, there are different types of metal, iron and steel and whatever. But in general, steel, metal, um, uh, iron was not allowed to be used. The only things, the knives were made out of it. But other than that, they were not allowed to have any metal in the base of Mingdash. Says the Rebbe, 
that in the third Pesach Mikdash it will be allowed. And that's what I want to talk about today. Where does the Rebbe derive this from? And this is a phenomenal chidush. And perhaps I would like to show you that Rabbi Yonis and Eipschitz, one of the great, um, one of the great uh, scholars about 200 years ago, 250 years ago, uh, also, uh, you know, is 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 suggesting that in the third temple there would be no problem at all with using steel and metal. He doesn't say that explicitly that there is steel and metal in it, but he says that there was no problem. He that hypothetically, based on what he's saying, which I'm going to share with you soon, it wouldn't be any problem whatsoever for the same reason the Rebbe gives. It's interesting, the Rebbe does not bring this, 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 this teaching from the Avas Yonasan, which is a, a book from Rabbi Yonasan Ipshitz. I saw it in this book called Yalkut Mashiach Egeula, which is a compilation of different teachings about our Mashiach on the Parsha, where he brings it. So I say thank you to Rabbi Duba for uh, bringing that to my attention. So now let's really get to it and see this, this idea. Where does it come from? So first we begin with this week's parsha, meaning right in the beginning of the parsha, when it says what are the items that were allowed to be used for the construction of the Beis HaMikdash. So it says, the zois, what, no, what were the, for the Mishkan, what, not, just, not only what was allowed to, what were the, Moshe gave the Jewish people a list of which items could be donated because they're going to be used in the in the tabernacle. So he says, This is the truma. This is the um, separation you, sh- you should take from them. Zav kasef gold, silver, and copper. Then he goes on to list another altogether. There were like either thirteen or fifteen items that were used. Uh, the, the, from the metallic world, only gold, silver, and copper. Then there is blue wool, and, or wool dyed blue, and argamon, and purple wool, and red wool, and linen, and goats here. Um, animal hides, uh, ram hides from rams dyed red, and then the special animal called tachash, they also used its, its leather, its outer hide, wood, uh, and then oil, and different spices, and then special stones that were used, uh, precious gems. These are all the things that the Jewish people had to donate. So there's a very interesting midrash. Okay? This is a midrash um, in, and this midrash is stated in this parsha, midrash Rabbah, but not in the beginning of the parsha, Actually, right in the towards the end of Parshas Truma, in the Imperek Lamid Parsha Lamid Hey, Parsha Lamid Hey, in my Medrash it's Seif Hey. So it says like this: It's on the words Vasisa Sakrashim. You should make the beams for the Mishkan. Maxiv Lamayla. What does it say before that? Vezoisa Truma, and this is the donation. Ashetikhomeitam you should take from them. Zov gold, vakasev and silver, unachoshes and copper. Okay. So the Midrash says, Zov, Zubavel. Gold is indicating the Babylonian Empire. It's very interesting. We're talking about building the tabernacle for God, the Mishkan. 
And the, and the Medrash says, when it says gold, gold is indicative and symbolizing the, the Malchus of Bavel. Shanamar, and it brings a Pasuk in Daniel, where it describes a, you know, the, the, the image of the beast, and, and, and it, had, uh, it, uh, it, had, it was gold. The Kasev Zumadai, and the silver is referring to the uh, Persian Empire. Shanamar, Chadoyu Vidroyidu Kasev. Its hands were made out of silver. And other Medrash, it brings the the Pasuk by Verosh that uh, Haman gave him uh, silver coins. Mechoshes, copper, Zuyavan, that's Yavan, that's the Greeks. And we know that the Jewish people were, went through four exiles in addition to Egypt. First the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks. And finally, Shanamar, May, I don't know how you pronounce that. May uhi, which refers to its innards, its stomach. They are kaseha and and the feet of the beast and the thighs of the beast. The nachash, which was made out of copper. And according to the interpretation, that's referring to the third empire, which is the Greek. Arvol barzel, the matter says explicitly, but steel, ain't khan. It's not stated over here still. Loi b'migdash v'loi b'mishkan. Not in the base of Migdash and not in the Mishkan. That steel was not used, not in the temple that Shlomo HaMelech built. Not in the Mishkan, in the, in the mobile home that Moshe built. Lama, but there's no, there's no barzel. Shanimshel, why? Shanimshel by Edoim Harisha. Because the last and final exile which are the Edomites, the children of Esau, of Esau. Edom, which is the, the, Roman, the Roman Empire. They are the wicked Edom. Shechriva Beis Amigdash, they destroyed the Holy Temple. So therefore, God says, I don't want to have anything of them in my temple. Keep the metal, keep the steel away. Lamdoch, this comes to teach you. From here you see that in the, in the future, in the end of days, once God's name is going to be revealed over the entire world, Mashiach is going to be revealed, and the whole world is going to become running to God and we want to participate. So they're all going to bring presents. They're all going to bring gifts. And, they want to, and they're going to want to bring it to Jerusalem. And God is going to receive it from all of them but not from Edom. So the Med, why? Because they destroyed the temple. So the, so the Medrash asks, well, hold it, the Babylonians also destroyed the temple. They destroyed the first temple. So the, the Medrash says, well, they destroyed it, but they didn't uproot it. They didn't go down into the, into the, into the foundations. They, 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 sh they sheared it, they knocked it down, but they didn't uproot but Edom had such a hatred to the Jewish people that they uprooted it from its roots. And like it says in the Pasuk, Aru, Aru, dig it out, Ada Yesodba, to the foundation. Lefikach, therefore, like Nichtev Barzel, Bemishkan, Ubemigdash. That's why it does not mention steel in the Mishkan and the Mishkan, because steel, Barzel, is indicative of Esav, of Edom. 
Like we see, the Esau actually was blessed by Isaac, by Yitzchak. You'll live by your sword. The sword is made up of, 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 of metal. So that can be used. And then the Medrash goes on to say how all the nations are going to bring gifts and the first Mashiach is not going to want to take it. And God says, yeah, take it from them. It's going to start with Egypt. The Egyptians are going to bring. God says, it's okay. They actually were served as the host for the Jewish people during a 210-year exile. And then the Ethiopians are going to bring, and God will say, accept it. The various different nations, God will take it all. But when Edom will come, God will say, get out of here. Chase away, ga'ar, yell at them. Chayas kona, the beast of the reeds, which is referring to Edom, which is associated to the reeds, a whole long story we're not going to get to it right now. This is the Midrash. Pretty interesting. So this Midrash, uh, so, and that's the secret why there's no bars up. Now, the Mepharshim asked the question. This is a very important question. And that is, in Sefer Divrei Ayamim, in Chronicles, In the book of Chronicles, Aleph, the first one, there's Aleph and Beis, it talks about um, King David, David HaMelech, speaking to his son Shlomo and telling him about his future task of building the Beis Amigdash. Because King Solomon Excuse me, Shlomo Melech built the Beis Hamikdash. So in Perek Chav Beis here it says, "V'yoyimet David l'shloyim b'noi." Perek Chav Beis pasuk Zayin, "Ani hoyim l'vavi livnes b'ayis l'shem Hashem alakai." I had intended to build a house for God, but Hashem said to me that you cannot build it because your hands are bloody. You spilled a lot of blood. And my house is a house of peace, and therefore you can't put bloody hands and on my temple. Okay. But you're going to have a son. He is going to be a man of peace. In him there won't be any war. He will not have any blood on his hands. He will be the one. His name will be Shlomo. Peace and tranquility I will give during his, during his time, during his reign. In his days. He can build a house for me. Okay. He will be my son. I will be to him a father. Fine. And, uh, okay. Vihine. Now, David HaMelech continues. And he says, but I prepared. I, I wasn't, God prevented me from building the house. Building him a, a, a home. But I, but I did whatever I could do. And that is, I prepared all the materials. He says, Vihine ba'anyi, in my pain. I pained this. It costed me a lot of work and a lot of energy. I, I literally gave my life to this. The Malbim learns, I literally, I'm poor now, you know? I literally, I, I emptied my coffers. I have nothing because I gave everything away for the temple. All my fortune, whatever he, all of his wealth. That's the meaning, with my pain. What did I do? I prepared to the house of, for the house of God. Zahav gold, a hundred thousand kikar. It's a huge amount of gold. The kesef and silver, elef alafem kikrim. A million kikar. Unbelievable amount of silver. 
and copper or bronze, barzel and steel, ain mishkol. There is no weight. There was so much that you could. There was no. We didn't even weigh it. And also wood and stones. I prepared, and you can add even more. It says clearly that King David prepared barzel. He prepared steel. Now, that's in the beginning. Then, later in chapter 20, it's in chapter 22. Chapter 29, um, David is speaking to the Jewish people. And he's telling them how he prepared everything. And this is in Pasuk Bey's Perikhov test, Divrayamim Aleph. With all my power, I prepared for the house of God. Hazav lazav, the gold for gold, vakesav lekesav, and the silver for silver, vanachoshes lanachoshes, and copper for copper, ha barzel lebarzel, steel for steel. And then David Amelech asks the people if they want to donate more. And in Pasig Vav and Zion, it says that the people came on, on top of what David Amelech had, King David had already prepared, the people came and brought connected to this week's parasha, a huge amount. And they donated, the ministers and all the leaders, everybody, and, then, and they brought tons of what? A lot. And steel, a hundred thousand kikar of steel. So David Amelech says he prepared without an end steel. He couldn't even, it was too much to even weigh it. But later from the people, he took another hundred thousand kikar. Again, a huge amount of steel. Now it's interesting, it's not mentioned in Malachim. In, Sefer, in the book of Kings, it's not mentioned anything about the steel. But in, the, in Chronicles, it does mention steel. So here's the question. It says over here in the Midrash that they purposely did not use any steel. And as I mentioned to you that in Kings, in Malachim, it says specifically that you couldn't hear any, and even use steel tools inside the Beis English. So what's the Barzel doing over here? So the, the Mepharshim on the Midrash asked the question. Now Ramban, Nachmanides, asks this question too. Nachmanides asks this question in... Parshas Yisrael. In the end of Parshas Yisrael, where it says you shouldn't use any, um, two weeks ago, in Yisrael is in Perek Chav, all the way in the end. Hold on, yeah. He brings over here the reason we're not allowed to use any metal. So this is in. On the if you raise your, your sword on the, on the altar, you desecrated it. So he says, the reason is, since barzel is a destructive steel and different metals, iron, it's meant to produce weapons, and weapons cut short people's lives. Then they had swords, and then it turned into guns and bullets, which are things that bring, um, um, uh, that shorten, that they, 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 they uh, kill people, murder people, or whatever. 
God says, my temple is meant to connect me to my world, which means to make the world live. I am life. Death is the opposite of me. I am life. And therefore, in a place that's meant to give life, don't bring the antithesis to life, something that interrupts life. Good. That's what the, he explains over here. But then he says that Shlomo Melech did even more. That's what I mentioned earlier. That not only didn't he use it for the altar, but he didn't even allow it to be heard. That in the house, it says in Kings 1, Chapter 6, verse number 7. It says that they didn't even hear the sounds of metal in the Beis HaMikdash. Even though it was permitted. Um, because he says only on the, on the altar you weren't allowed to. But... Um, they used it outside. That's what I told you earlier. They, 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 they did use metal, but they used it outside, not inside. Very good. He says that they extracted, they excavated the 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 the, um, the stones for the temple from the from the mountains. They took it out with metal with metal tools. But then then when they brought it, they transported it, and it was already cut, and it was all ready. Okay. But then he brings uh, all in order to keep steel away from the holy. But then he asked the question, David, and the steel that King David had sanctified, which was so much steel that they didn't even measure it. They didn't even investigate how much. As, the, as it says, it was beyond measure. He says, Lassus Memenu Kalim. It was not used in the actual structure of the temple, but they made different vessels from it, utensils. Because we said, it's mainly the prohibition is to use it in the temple itself. But when they, they had knives and things like that, yeah. No, I made a mistake. No, not even for that. He says they made tools, to cut wood, to chop wood. And when they needed new, new stones, so they had... All this steel was meant for the tools that were used, to, but it was not used in the Beis HaMikdash. That's Ramban. It's a little hard to accept that just because why did he need so much, so much steel for that? But we're going to see that perhaps there is a different explanation, and that's where we're going to with today. It's very important. Now, before we continue... I want to share with you another midrash. This is a midrash Tanchuma. And this is in the beginning of the parasha. Midrash Tanchuma is a different type of midrash. Midrash Rab is one midrash. Midrash Tanchuma is another midrash. And over there it says, same idea like this midrash. Zav means gold is, in, is symbolizing the Babylonians. Kesev is symbolizing the Persians. Nechoshes um, is symbolizing the Greeks. But the midrash... The Medrash continues. What's with Edom? They're also symbolized. Where? It says, The ram skins, dyed red, which was used as the roof of the Mishkan. That, the dyed red, is referring to Edom. So Edom is also present in the building of the, of the Mishkan. 
So it seems like we have over here an argument between the two Midrash. The Midrash Tanchuma seems to say that Edom is okay. We could bring them in because they're symbolized in the in the uh, in the red the, the red skins. I mean, the skins dyed red. The um, The other Midrash seems to be saying that no, that Edom would be symbolized in steel. That makes sense, you see. Edom means the red one, so they can either be in red, or because someone who's red, which means a bloodthirsty person, well, he has a sword. He, you know, he loves he loves guns, loves killing, loves loves weapons. That's what he thrives off. So he can be symbolized both by the red and by the. Um, and by the weapons. So the Midrash says that you didn't use it. You, that, and, and, and that's a sign that it's not going to... He's not part of the Mishkan. So yeah or no? It's a good question. It, is, it a, is it a contradiction? Yes or no? Now, um, before we resolve that, I just want to mention one more thing. The Midrash Tanchuma that mentions the four, the four empires and includes Edom as one of them in the hides, the Redskins, says, but who comes after all of that? When Daniel saw all these four empires, he was terrified when Hashem showed it to Daniel. But then Hashem showed him the power that's going to take them all down. And that's Moshiach. And that is hinted to an hour parasha where, where it says, Shemen Lamo'or, oil to lighting. To, 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 to lighting. That's talking about the ultimate illumination of the entire world. Through the one who is anointed with oil. That's Mashiach Tzadkenu. The Shemen Lamor, the illuminating oil, is Mashiach. That comes after, and that's the, uh, the one that uh, rectifies everything. That's just a side note. So, um, the Shemesh Shmuel, one of the... Uh, Rebbe of Sachacha, one of the Hasidic masters pre-war, uh, is a fascinating book of deep thought. And in his Sefer, he brings the two Midrashim and he brings the conflict. He asks the question, do we include Edom or we don't include Edom? So he says a very interesting answer, which I wanted to share before I get back to the steel. Uh, discussion whether it's going to be in the third temple. He just says something very, very significant, something very special. He says that we know that the, first of all, he asked the question, why in the world are we building a mishkan over here? We're building a tabernacle. And in the midst of building this tabernacle, we're suddenly dealing with the four empires. Can't we forget about the empires for a moment? It almost seems like the Jewish people are so caught up and obsessed with suffering. That no matter, we're actually building our marital home for God. We're dealing, it's one of the most beautiful moments. And we're reading, you know, what are we talking about? Oi, this is the gold. Oi, the Babylonians. The, the silver. Oi, gewald. That's the, uh, the, the Persians. The copper. Oi, abroch. Now we have the, 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 the Greeks. Let alone, we'll worry about the troubling times. We're dealing with the good days, the time when the temple is standing. Why do we have to bring them into this narrative? 
And the Shem Shmuel answers, because the Mishkan is really a mini creation. The Mishkan is really all included. The entire, it's the nucleus of the world. And therefore it has within it all of creation. And in the story of creation we find, the Midrash tells us the same thing. Right in the beginning of the story of creation when it says, when God creates the world. And it says, the world was chaotic, and empty. And dark, on the deep, deep, deep waters. There too the Midrash explains that these four things, Tohu, Bohu, Choshech, Tohom, chaos, emptiness, darkness, and deep, deep, deep waters are referring to the four empires. And then later when the Torah describes the four rivers coming out of Eden, right, the four, uh, that, are, uh, uh, that there's a river that goes out of Eden and then it forks and it splits into four rivers, the Midrash again tells us the four rivers, these are the four empires. Since the Mishkan was made in a manner that the Mishkan corresponds and includes within it all of creation, so obviously the four nations are very, very much part of the story of creation and therefore they have to be in the Mishkan. Now he doesn't explain much why. He just says it has to be there. Now he does add an interesting idea. He says, oh, what happened? Hold it. If Adam would have never has sinned, there would have never been an exile. There would have never been a darkness. And this is already in the story of creation before Adam and Chava sinned, before Adam and Eve sinned. So why are we talking about this negative stuff already then? So therefore he says, you have to say that these elements, they exist in holiness. Before they exist as a dark, powerful force of, of anti-God, a force fighting the Jewish people, fighting God, bringing exile and, and destruction to the world, they exist as potential holiness on some level. And then only because of the sin, they fall down and become a menacing force. But what you see over here is they're integral to existence. It's not just a... And therefore, they were in the Mishkan. They exist in the temple, Mishkan. But he says, there is a difference fundamentally between the three and the fourth. The first three, uh, the, the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks, versus the fourth one, which is Edom. The Romans. What's the difference? Now we're going to go to a fourth, another place in the Torah that mentions four, which is again symbolic to these four. And that is where the Torah talks about the four non-kosher animals that all have one sign of kosher. In order for an animal to be kosher, it needs to have displayed two signs. One is that it chews its cud, and the other one that it has split hooves. So the, 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 the Pasuk in Parsha Shmini in Leviticus and the third chapter, not the third chapter, the third parsha, and Shmini discusses kosher and unkosher. It says four animals. Gamol, uh, Arneves, uh, uh, whatever, a shafan, and a chazir, and a pig. So the first three, the camel, and the hyrax, I think, and the rabbit, or whatever, um, and then the, um, the pig, those, the three of them, have a sign. What's their sign? They, they, they chew their cud, but they don't have split hooves. So they have one, and the Torah says they're not kosher. The pig is the opposite. It has split hooves, but it doesn't chew its cud. She so says, what's the difference between them? 
You see, split hooves is something that's to the outside. Chewing the cud happens internally. It swallows and regurgitates. But that's happening inside, not outside. So the three other animals have a non-kosher sign on the outs. I'm sorry, have a yeah, non-kosher sign on the outside and a kosher sign on the inside. The pig is the opposite. It's kosher on the outside and not kosher in the inside. So he says, take a look, and that's the difference between Rome and the other nations. The other nations represent a certain darkness in the world, a certain forces that are not consistent with living a godly existence. They're corrupted people, and they do a lot of evil and a lot of bad. And when you have a Jewish people that are meant to be a godly people in this world, uh, it doesn't work out well. These nations clash with Israel, with the implementation of the divine plan for creation. With a godly kingdom, they interfere with it. Therefore, they destroy temples. If we have a temple, they destroy it, they desecrate it, or they hold, they don't let it be built, or whatever it is, they get in the way. And they oppress Israel and holiness. Because they're unholy. But he says, even though they're unholy, there is a kernel of holiness in the inside. Deep inside, there is a potential for holiness. Externally, it's not, in other words, their inner self, their deeper godly potential, is not, is not making contact with their external everyday life. And that's why the non-kosher sign is on the outside, but inside there is kosher. Therefore, he says, the process of Mashiach is what? To uncover the inside. That's what we the Jewish people are here doing through Torah and mitzvahs. To peel away the peels, to break the shells that are on the outside, and to bring out, to unearth the inner potential that is in all of creation. So of course, included in that, is the three major empires that really represent, you know, three, three parts of humanity. If you would take humanity and divide it into four parts, related to the four, probably the four directions, north, south, east, and west. So three of them, of uh, three quarters of humanity, there is an inner goodness, it's blocked, it's concealed, and the work of Israel, the Jewish people, is to bring it out. Once it's brought out, It'll be good. The unholiness of the outside will disintegrate and only you're left only with the good. And that's why he says when Mashiach comes, these three nations are invited into the temple. Meaning, first of all, first of all, they, their, 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 their gifts are going to be accepted by God when Mashiach comes. Secondly, in the Mishkan that we built as the prototype way back then with, Mo, with Moshe, we included them because they have a place eventually in holiness, because there is an inner core that's good. It just needs to be tapped. It's not ready right now, but eventually it's going to be tapped and it's going to be good. Esav is the opposite. He behaves in a good way, like we see about Esav. Esav pretended to be a pious person. He went and he got married when he was 40 years old to show everybody how, how righteous he is, because he said, my dad, I follow my father's footsteps. My father got married by 40, I got married by 40. But his father got married by 40, his father was a saintly, a saintly tzaddik who was completely removed from all worldly pleasures and all physical things. And then he got married at 40. 
Esav was the biggest womanizer that there was. He abducted women, he raped women, he abused women, stole married women from their husbands for all the 40 years. When he's 40, he said, I'm getting married. He was a faker, he's a liar. He pretends. And we know that the reason why you, it says Yitzhak loved him, he used to, he used to fool him. Many other things that Esau did was to show on the outside that he's a righteous person. So in his behavior, in action, in the external, it's, you see it by Rome as well. Uh, you know, it says the sages, which are his grandchildren, it says the sages were having the discussion about the Romans. So they were discussing that they, and, 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 and some of this, Rabbi Yehuda, Yehuda said that the Romans, we have to thank them, they've done a lot of nice things. They built uh, markets and they've done, uh, they built bridges and they've, uh, they've done a lot, a lot of good for humanity. And Rabbi Shimon Ba Yochai says that everything they're doing is only for their own selfish motives. And it's, 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 it's not for good. It's, uh, externally it looks good, but it's not really good. If that's the case, when Moshiach will come, when the real Pneumius will come out, when the inside will come out, and the inside is rotten to the core. So there's nothing to, to reveal. In other words, the good is a fake good. The good is a pretentious good. It looks like it's cares, it looks like it's, 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 it's uh, compassionate, and so on and so forth, but it's not, it's not from a true, real, um, sincere place. The opposite of the nation, of the other nations. Mashiach's world, when everything will be the panemius, the inner will come out. So then there's no, there, Mashiach will not accept, the Medrash says he won't accept anything from them. However, after everything is said and do, done, they did a whole bunch of good. The good that was, and good never gets lost. So the good is going to be used, the, the external good of Esav is going to be elevated. According, again, this is according to the teaching of the Shemesh. Well, the external good of Esav is going to be elevated. In all the other nations, it's the internal. The external is bad. The internal is going to be elevated. But by, by Edom, it's the opposite. The external is, 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 is good. The internal is bad. So the external is going to be elevated. And he says, that's... That means that the good that they've been done is going to be recognized. Even if the motives were not so pure. So, he says, that's the reason. If you take a look, the Midrash is not arguing. When the, when the Midrash Rabbah says that we don't include Esau into the temple, Esau, Esau, and the Romans are not, that's in the Beis HaMingdash itself, in the inside, in the Mishka. Zav, Kesef, and the Gold, silver, copper was used in the Beis HaMingdash. That um, Edom is not, is not included. There's no metal, in, no steel in the Mishka. However, the other Midrash that says, Oires Elamodamim, the red hide, the, the, the red skins, the skins that were used as the hides, that's not in, that's on top. That's on the outside. Oh, the outside we can use it because the outside, quite on the contrary, the outside there is a goodness that could be sublimated and included in the Mishka. This is an interesting idea that he states. Any case, I want to take you back to the question we were asking before regarding the steel. 
And is there any room for this? What's the meaning that David HaMelech prepared all the steel? And the explanation is as follows. This is the way the Rebbe sees it. It's really awesome. He says, um, let, let's go back really to the, to the, um, the problem with the steel. As I mentioned earlier, Barzel is considered a force of destruction. It's an antithesis to the temple. And we find already when not only is it, in, is it, a, is it a power that technically could destroy, but you find that, as we said earlier, who destroyed the Beis Amigdash? Esav. And Esav is compared to, to, to metal. Metal symbolizes weapons, sword. That's Esav's, that's Esav's uh, um, hobby. But we find also that when Ezekiel, um, Yecheskel, was told to prophesy about the destruction of the Beis Amigdash, God tells Yecheskel to make a model of Jerusalem. This is in Perek Dalid, Pasuk uh, Yecheskel, Dalid, Pasuk um, starts with, with uh, Pasuk Aleph. First, Yupsukim tells him to make a model of Jerusalem, make it on a brick. And then build around it a walls and armies around it. And then he tells them, make a barzel, take a pan of metal, barzel, and make this wall around, around this small mini city of Jerusalem that you've made, put a metal between you and the city. Anyways, and this is a sign, Rashi says that I am bringing a siege on the city, and the siege is called the siege of steel. So the metal in the prophecy, which God is giving, communicating to Yecheskel Anavi Ezekiel, Hashem is showing him the idea that steel is going to break the temple. No good. The Gemara says in Mesechtas Brachas as well, that from the day the Beis Amigdash was destroyed, from the day the temple was destroyed, there is a mechitza shel barzel, there is an iron curtain that's separating between God and Israel, between God and the Jewish people. So the iron, the steel, symbolic of everything destructive and dark in the world. And that's the reason why it was not used and it should not be used because it's the total antithesis to the temple. However, why in the world are we using any, any of the instruments and any of the tools, as we mentioned earlier, any of these um, um, uh, uh, substances that are, that, are, that are materials, rather, any of these materials that are symbolic of, 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 of the forces of exile? To begin with, why are we using them? And the answer is the purpose for, of making a base amigdash ultimately is to make the world a home for God. And to make the world a home for God means to make the world a home for God means the world in its entirety. Hashem purposely wanted a dwelling place in the low. And the low means things that are naturally not godly, naturally not holy. Quite on the contrary, naturally they oppose holiness. 
And God's intention was that these things that naturally oppose God should be transformed and re-educated, re, 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 uh, rehabilitated, re, uh, transformed, uh, and, and become receptive, to become, to become enlightened. In other words, the purpose of creation is not that God should have a small little people, Israel, and with them he will, like we spoke at the beginning, there's a great intimacy. That's not, that's not, that's of course the, at the inner, inner, inner core of the purpose. But the purpose is a perfect world, a world in which God feels comfortable, the entire world. And therefore the prophecy in the end of days is, oh, and then I'm going to convert the nations. All the nations are going to be converted to know Hashem and to be in a relationship with God. And quite on the contrary, it says that the real deepest deposits of holiness are buried dafka in the nations, not amongst the Jewish people. And when the Jewish people go amongst the nations throughout the long, treacherous exile and learn Torah, do mitzvahs, and connect all these countries, all these far-flung places to, to Hashem through any act of a mitzvah, then is where we really extract the treasures of the treasures, the deepest godliness, and make this world the most attractive to God. And that is the reason why from the beginning, when we're talking about a mishkan, God is already symbolized, telling us that there is gold, there's silver, there's copper, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, everything that we shudder when we hear, all these entities, all these forces that we've gone, that, that, that have been the, the greatest darkness brought immeasurable suffering and pain. Yet we know that eventually they too are going to be part of the temple. Part of the home for God. And that's the ultimate revenge, if you can say. Is a complete conversion. A complete transformation. In the end, you're going to be on our team. In the end, you're going to be included in holiness. If that's the case, we have to catch up with the steel as well. True, we were able to, throughout all of, throughout all, to a certain degree, throughout all of history, we can only work with gold, silver, copper, but not with steel. Steel is too dark. It's too low. It's a force. As we said earlier, not only do they destroy the temple, but they uproot its foundations. This is the force that is at the root, the ugliest of all Kalipa. The deep, like we said earlier from the Shemesh Mul, even if there's any holiness there, it's only on the outside, not on the inside, right? Inside it's thoroughly rotten. <laughs> and yet even that which is what seems to be thoroughly rotten on the inside, if God put it in this world, it has to be able to be transformed. So in the end, we catch up even with the metal. How do we, how do we transform metal? And here's an, a very powerful idea. The ultimate reason why there is steel in the world to begin with, I mean to say, a nation of steel darkness, a powerful force of such stubborn fighting against God. You know, the descendant of Esau is Amalek. One of the things about Amalek, this week's parasha also, we're going to read a special reading. Usually it doesn't come out Parsha's Truma. It's very unique this year. Usually it comes out Parsha's Tetzave. This year we're going to read Parsha Zachar. Remember what the Amaleks did already on Parsha's Truma. We're going to read that extra reading. And Amalek comes from, um, comes from Edom. And Amalek, we know, is a force of irrational hatred and opposition to God. It's called chutzpah. No reason at all. Even when he can look God in the eye and fight him. So it seems like, you know, that's steel. 
But why would God create such a darkness? And the answer is because it evokes in us our steel. There is steel of holiness. Just like there is the steel in the unholy, there is the holy steel. There is barzel the Kedusha. Holy barzel. And the holy barzel is what can vanquish and destroy the unholy barzel. The Talmud tells us that every Talmud Chacham, every Torah scholar that does not let me tell you exactly the words, I forgot it. Every, every Torah scholar, this is, where is this Gemara? In Masechtas Tainus. Tractate Tainus, the Davdalid, Ahmed Aleph. The Gemara says, every Talmud Chacham that is not as hard as steel is not a Talmud Chacham. That's not a, in other words, you've got to be tough. How do we know it from? It says regarding the land of Israel. It says Eretz, that Israel is a very special land. It's a land, Asher Avoneho, that its stones, Barzel, are made out of steel. So the Gemara learns like this. Don't read it stones. The word Avonim, stones, the Talmud says, play on the words. Don't read it stones. Eloboneho, those who build her. The builders, which are the, the Torah scholars. The Torah scholars, the stones are steel. So what does this mean? You have to be willing to fight for what's right, for truth. Rock solid. Be willing even to sacrifice. Give, give, it a, give everything. Go in all the way. It's that stubbornness. You see Moshe Rabbeinu when he pleads that God should forgive the Jewish people, he mentions something that we would think is the opposite. It's not a quality. You should not try to highlight that. He keeps on saying that we are a stiff-necked people. We're stubborn. Moshe is using it as an argument, a positive trait. It's one of the traits of the Jewish people. We're very stubborn. The stubbornness of the Jewish people it comes from the essence of their soul. The word barzel it's the same numeric value as the word goral. Goral represents the very, very deepest inner core of the soul. Goral means a lottery. The idea of a lottery, we, it's Purim is a time of lotteries. The idea of a lottery means you follow something not with logic and not with reason. Logic is not hard. Logic is not, because every logical argument could be disputed. You can argue it. If I'm Jewish because of logic, because it makes sense, then we would have long given it up. Because all the arguments to be Jewish and to, could have been refuted based on logic. Jews are around today not because of good logical arguments. Jews are, the Greeks had good arguments to argue our arguments and others. Jews are around today because of rock solid stubbornness. We're just stubbornly Jewish. And where does it come from? Our connection with God that transcends logic and that's called Gorol. Gorol is, that's again a lottery. Manoim Goiroleinu, a level of Gorol. 
Barzal is gematria goro. The steel, the rock solid steel stubbornness of the Jewish people. And how does it come out? What forces us to activate our steel commitment to God and commitment to holiness? It's only when we're faced with stubborn klipa, when we are encounter Amalek, when we encounter the children of Asa, when we encounter the Romans, they brought out on us the fight. You know, Rabbi Akiva and his friends died the most and, and, and were tortured to death, but they did not in any way, God forbid, step away one tiny bit from their Torah observance. And they won. The Romans aren't here today and the Jewish people are here today. It's the stubbornness of the Jews in, 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 in Russia, in the USSR, in communist Russia, where communism, where the USSR, the Soviet Union doesn't exist today. The Jewish people do exist today. And go all across Russia, you'll see observance, yeshivas, study of Torah, all because of just plain stubbornness. The stubbornness is provoked when we, when we encounter a very stubborn opposition and then we have to fight it. But the, the quality that we have is that we have godly stubbornness. And that's why we win. So the way, and, the, and, and here's the thing, once the unholy steel fulfills its purpose, and what is that? To bring out our holy steel, our holy steel stubbornness, then it serves its purpose, and once it serves its purpose, it's elevated. It can be transformed to holiness. And that's the, the highest tikkun we can do. We can take the lowest thing, the thing that is anti-God to the very, very, very end, and yet we can convert it. Why? Because the whole purpose of why it's anti-God to the very end is to bring out in us a commitment that's without an end. And then it's elevated, transformed. A little mystically, let's take this, just one, one thought of mysticism to bring into this that's really cool. Then we'll wrap it up. Barzel represents four powerful feminine forces of Klippa. So says the Arizal. The holy Arizal says that the Samach Mem, the Sitra Achra, Satan himself, has four wives. Goes on to say their names. I don't like saying names of the, of the feminine Klippas. I don't want to say the names even of the men. <laughs> we don't to keep away from them. You can look it up in Sefer Halikutim of the Arizal Pashas Yivayachi. On the Pasuk, Oisri Lagefen Ira, he talks about the four feminine female Klippas. And uh, he says, they are the barzel of Klippa. That's the force of the steel of Klippa. Is the, that's why it says by, well, you see, it says by Og. Og is this massive giant that only Moshe can kill. The reason he was physically so you big is because spiritually he represented a horrific, powerful force of darkness. So it says about him that his crib, when he was a little baby, because he was so big, even when he was a baby, that he needed a steel crib, or else it would break the bread. In a arsoi eres barzel, it says, his, his steel, his, his, his crib, his cradle, as a little baby, was a steel 
cradle. They made special for him. They had to have a big steel company make for him a bed that can hold him. That was when he was a baby, let alone when he got older. In any case, so you see from there, that's the barzel of the unholy. In Kedusha, in holiness, but there is also, there's also barzel. So the Arizal says it, in Parshas Veschanon, in Lakuti Torah, in the Holy Ari, in Parshas Veschanon, and in Parshas Ekev. He says, Barzel is the Roshetavis, it's the acronym of the word. The Bey stands for Bila. The Resh stands for Rachel. The Zion stands for Zilpa. And the Lamet stands for Leia. Bila, Rachel, Zilpa, Leia, Barzel. Our four mothers, the mothers of the 12 tribes. They are the antithesis. They are the barzel. They are the rock source of rock solid holiness to fight and to do combat with the four impure klippas. Now, the feminine klippa is darker than the, ma- than the male, male klippa. That's the way it is in klippa. In klippa, the nukva, the female, is darker and worse than the male. So therefore, so we have the four mothers fighting this klippa. Now, so the Rebbe says something like this. It's a fascinating idea. He says that we know that um, the ultimate temple, the ultimate Beis Amikdash, highlights the feminine over the masculine. The final base Amigdash highlights the feminine over the masculine. Today's system, the system that exists until Mashiach comes, I know this is a, a, like a little bit of a, a, of a side concept of what we didn't talk about today, but in earlier classes and many times, and I'm not going to elaborate, but I'm just going to say very short. The system that exists until the end of days is a system where the male energy dominates the feminine energy. The feminine means recipient, and male means bestower, transmitter. So masculine energy is stronger than feminine energy. And in holiness, the, ma- the male is holier than the female. And some people, therefore, will, try to, will say and feel that Judaism is a, is a, uh, is a, um, a, 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 a you know, a, a, a discipline, a, a, a religion, or whatever you want to call it, that is more male-oriented. You know, the woman takes more of a a uh, a background role. Well, even if one can argue that, I don't think that's true. But even if you could argue and, and say, well, the mitzvahs, for example, and shul experience, yeah, let's say anybody that <laughs> hangs out in Jewish homes know that the women call the shots. That's just the way it is most of the times. And I think that's the way it has been from the beginning of time. When the sages say that even Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, God tells Avram, listen to your wife. He made Tolzar as the boss. And you see, she was the one calling. Rebecca and Isaac, she's the one who gets it. She pulls the string and Isaac, you know, she's the one running the show. Rachel and Leah, it's always the women that are controlling it anyways from the very get-go. So this whole idea 
and maybe made the men feel good throughout history, but the women were always in charge. But when Mashiach will come, it will for sure be a feminine world. And the reason for that is because when Mashiach will come, everything will turn over upside down. Now, the flow of energy of godliness comes from above, from the more spiritual, and it goes down to the physical. The physical is the student, the spiritual is the master, the teacher. So the spiritual, which is the male element, heaven is male, earth is female, heaven is above earth. Everything spiritual is above, soul is above body, and so on and so forth. But the intention of God is not all these high levels and all these spiritual dynamics. The intention, God's intention ultimately is the physical, the earth. The, the most, the, 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 the vessel, the container, which the ultimate container is the physical world. God wants that to become his home. And therefore, once the spiritual is finishing, finishes downloading and delivering all of its insight and all of its uh, information into the physical, and the physical is enlightened, then the physical, then everything turns over and the physical becomes higher than the, than the spiritual. Way above it. And that means the feminine rules over the masculine. That's the way it's going to be. And that's the reason it says that the Mishkan, hear, hear this idea, the Mishkan, which is the temporary dwelling of God, was built in a way that the masculine was more prominent than the feminine. The Mishkan was built from wood. Most of the walls of the Mishkan was made out of wood. Wood is male. Stones are female. I'm not going to get into that. The reason for that is, but that's the spiritual sim symbolism of trees are related to the air anpin, the six emotion masculine attributes. Stones are malchus, represents just pure physicality. The world, the, the vessel, the container. So in the Mishkan, there was hardly any stone. It was all, all mainly highlighting the spiritual. But the temple that was built, even the one that was built by Shlomo, which was many years ago, since it was the beginning already of the building of the ultimate temple, it reflected the future world. The future world is going to be a world where the, the primary is going to be the, the material, the physical, and therefore stones are going to be more important than wood. And that's why the entire temple was built out of stone. But that's only the Beis Amigdash. That's the temple. That's the temple that was future-like, but not yet in the future. In other words, the first temple, the second temple, was already, was already um, displaying certain futuristic um, energies of the world. The purpose of creation was already felt in the temple. But we weren't yet there at the destination. When Moshiach will actually come, this idea of the feminine being higher than the masculine and the low being higher than the, than everything that's low being higher than what was high and everything turning over is going to come to full expression. And therefore, we're going to dip lower than stone and we're going to go down to steel. 
and steel is going to be prominent and present in the Beis Hamikdash. Barzal. To just add one Kabbalistic idea to make this more. We mentioned male and female. So we have the forefathers, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and then we have their wives. The wives of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov all represent the concept of Malchus. Malchus is the last and final attribute, the recipient, which is later eventually the source of the physical world. So they represent Malchus. And therefore, since in Judaism, ultimately, the Malchus is going to be higher than the oldest sphero that come before it. The woman is going to transcend her husband. The, 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 the recipient is going to be higher than the Mashpia. That's why, as I mentioned earlier, Hashem told Avram Avinu, uh, Father Abraham, and so it was in the lives of all our fathers that the women were stronger by them than the men. They listened to their wives. It says that Avram was secondary to Sarah, Abraham was secondary to Sarah. Avram was second to Sarah in Nevoah. Prophecy was greater by her than by him. She was more enlightened than he was. That's the future world. Within that itself, there is two levels in Malchus. Here this is Gavaldic. There's two levels in Malchus. Two levels in, in, the, in the attribute of kingship. There is the level of Malchus, the Shekhinah, when she's still up attached to Atzilus. She's still in that spiritual realm. And then there is the Shekhinah when she comes down low, 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 all the way, all the way into the lowest places of existence. And then she's diminished, she's smaller, she's compromised. That's too low. That's way, way, way low than the forefathers. And yet, that's where God intends. Hashem wants the descent into the lowest places of existence and over there holiness should permeate them. Permeate. Even if it means reducing the voltage. Who represents the Shekhinah descent in the lower worlds? Not the wives of the forefathers, but their what we might call concubines. Who were they? I mean, the maidservants. And that is the reason why, for instance, the forefathers didn't want to marry um, the maid servants. For example, Hagar, um, Sarah is the one who, 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 who suggests it. Avram doesn't want. Obviously, based on Hashem telling him to listen to his wife, he married Hagar. It was a very sp Avram is not just marrying women over here. There's something very deep over here. Avram represents godly flow. Averma, he's the channel for godliness. Sarah is, when he's with Sarah, married to Sarah, intimate with Sarah, he's bringing divine energy into Malchus, the source of creation. But Malchus says she's still up there in the higher realms. If he's marrying Hagar, he's channeling godly light down very low. And Avram doesn't want to do that. Same as with Yaakov. Yaakov marries Rachel and Leah. They are the Shekhinah, as it is up there in Atzilus. But their maidservants, Bila and Zilpa, are the Shekhinah already embedded in, in the dark range realms of creation. So Yaakov doesn't want to go there. It's too low for him. Too much of a reduction of his energy. He doesn't want to bring it down so low. Neither Avram not Yaakov, and that's the reason, that's the meaning of the Pasuk, 
Even ma'asu habonim. The stone, which the stone is malchus, that the bonim, the builders, who Avram and Yaakov, they rejected it. They didn't want to descend down into such a low level of malchus, down in creation. But what does David HaMelech say? Hoi pina. Ultimately, God wants his light to come down into the physical world, not in the spiritual. So you have to channel all the way down. And that's why it was the mothers, Rachel and Leah and Sarah, they encouraged their husbands, they were the Shechina itself, to bring the energy down even lower. And eventually, the lowest becomes the highest. That's why if we take a look at the word, excuse me, that's why when we take a look at the word Barzel, It has Bilah before Rachel. It has Zilpah before Leah. It should have been the opposite. First, the main wife, and then the maid. No. Why? Because ultimately, what is Lalo? gets flipped over to be the highest. Even Ma'asu Aboinim, the stone that the builders have rejected. Hoysala becomes the head, goes all the way up on the top. And that's the idea of barzel, steel. Steel are lower than stones. And as we're saying now, it means going into the lowest, going into Edom, going into Esau's world, going into the very darkest elements of creation and over there turning it over to do a tikkun even in the metal, even in the steel. And yet that's what God wants most. Where the Alter Rebbe says, Shneir Zalman of Liadi in the Siddur, and in Lakuti Torah, I think in Parshas Vezei Sabracha could be, is where the Alter Rebbe says that that's why King David was born from his father Yishai. Yishai was, David was a son of Yishai and his wife. But in the actuality, Yishai thought that it was his maidservant that he was being intimate with, not with his wife. The whole story, how it came about, I once told the story, I'm not gonna do it right now, but how it was a whole story of, why, of how it came about that he thought he was with his maid. It had to be that way because the ultimate Moshiach's neshama comes from the tikkun of the lowest, lowest things. So at least in thought, there needed to be the thought that he was with his maid, not with his wife. Because maid spiritually represents the descent of Shekhinah into a much lower place. So now that we understand that the building of the, of the, the greatest lights of the future are all related to the fixing of the lowest of the low, we can now understand that in the third base Amigdash, we're going to suddenly realize the quality of steel. So the third base of English is going to last forever. That's the quality of steel. Steel is durable. If you want to make something be full, you put an iron and steel, and that's what makes it be stronger than something made out of stone. But even more than that, says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe says, even deeper than that, they're actually going to physically use steel in the third temple. And that's the reason why King David, David the Melech, prepared all that steel. It was 
for the third base Amigdash. It wasn't for Shlomo's temple. It was for the third base Amigdash that he prepared it, the, the, the steel. And it's going to be used in the third base Amigdash. And that's why it's connected to David, not to Shlomo. That's why in Melochim it's not mentioned. Shlomo doesn't use it. David, because David, David and Mashiach is one. David Malka Mashiach. How are you going to say technically, hold it? How can you use the steel? Steel is meant to be negative. It's meant to shorten a person's life. No. Only as long as there is evil in this world, then steel and metal is used for bad. But once Mashiach comes, what does it say? What are the prophets? That people are going to take their weapons and their guns and all the iron and steel that, there is, that was used for metals and for bad stuff and they're going to use it to turn it to plowshares and to pruning uh, things. In other words, to help the food, the food distribution, to help the food production, to bring, to feed hungry people. It's going to be, all steel is going to be used for good purposes. It's not going to be a weapon anymore. One steel is not going to be a weapon anymore. It's not going to be in any way a, 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 it's not an antithesis to holiness. Quite on the contrary. It's the, it's the usage of this steel for good purposes. We said earlier, it brings out stubbornness and holiness. So when the steel is, once the steel is, 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 is elevated, when it's not weapons anymore, there's no problem with putting steel in the base of English. More than that, not only is steel not going to exist, death won't exist. Bila Hashem Alekim, what is the Lashon over there? Bila Hashem Alekim as Maves. I'm so tired, I'm not even. Bila Hamaves Lanetzach, that's what it says. That, um, that death is going to be eradicated forever. Umacha Hashem Alekim Dima, and God is going to erase all tears. So there won't be death. So there won't be weapons. There won't be weapons that cause death because death won't exist anymore. Will be life forever. So, what's the problem with steel? Steel can then be used in the base of English. And that's why David the Melech prepared it for the temple. And I said, I'm going to leave you off with Rabbi Yonis and Ibshitz. So, Rabbi Yonis and Ibshitz and Avas Yonasan says the same idea that the Lubavitcher Rebbe says. He's asking. See, in the temple, there was no, no steel. Besides, on the roof of the Beis Amikdash, on the top of the temple, all the way on the very roof, there was something called Kalya Oirev. It was like little, um, uh, not pegs, but like, like pegs, like uh, pointy pieces of steel that went around the entire rooftop of the Beis Amikdash and was placed and they were meant that the birds, the oirev, the ravens, should not come and land on the base of English. And birds we know, you know when they land and they, they do their droppings, it's not honorable. So in order that that shouldn't happen, they had these things all the way on the roof of the base of English. And they were made out of metal. So the Mepharshim asked, like, how could they have the metal? They weren't yet. Anyways, it's not indoors, outdoors. It's on the roof. The roof is not holy. There's a lot to talk about. But the question over here is, did they, now, in the second temple, they, def, they definitely had this, this uh, these spikes, let's call it spikes. They had these spikes on the roof. Serving like a scarecrow, you know. 
They had these spikes on the roof. Did they have it in the first base of Mingdash or they didn't have it in the first temple? Oh, because I forgot. Rabbi Yonis and Ipschitz asked the question, if the Medrashas were now allowed to use Barzel, not in the, not in the, um, not in the Mishkan and not in the base of Mingdash, so why did David HaMelech prepare the steel? That's his question. Same question we were asking. Why did he prepare the steel? And his answer is as follows. He says, because... It's a very interesting idea. Rashi and he bring uh, and the Aruch say that the Kalya Oirev, these spikes that were on the base of Migdash, were only there in the second temple, not in the first temple. And the reason they say it wasn't there in the first temple. Because since the presence of the Shekhinah was so intense in the first base on Nigdash that the birds would not come there on their own. They were, too, they were afraid. They would get electrocuted. They didn't go close. Second temple, we know that the holiness was very, very, very much reduced. So uh, the birds were able to go there. You needed to have this, uh, like we find by the Kotel Amaravi, there's always a lot of birds there. right? So uh, they needed to have this protection. That's what that's what. So Tosfus asks a question, it's Taisvis and Menachas, I think Tafkuv Dalet all the way in the end, Taisvis says, no, 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 can't say so. Why? Because in Gemara Mesechtes Mayit Katan, Davtes, I think, the Gemara says, the Gemara is, is, is dealing there, if we can the Gemara lays out a halacha called Ein Ma'arvim Simcha B'Simcha. You can't mix one joy with another joy. We keep every celebration separate. You shouldn't overlap two celebrations. In other words, let me get practical halacha. You shouldn't make a, 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 a wedding during one of the festive holidays. Because the joy deserves its own joy. Don't mix it with another joy. The Gemara says, how do we know that Ein Ma'arvim Simcha B'Simcha, that we don't mix So the Gemara says, well, it says in, 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 in Malachim, when Shlomo Melech built the Beis HaMikdash, that he, he, the Jewish people had a celebration for 14 days. Seven days was the commemoration of the temple. And seven days later was Sukkot. So there was a 14-day holiday. So the Gemara says, so you see, for me, you don't mix. Because if, if, if you could mix, why didn't he wait until Sukkot and make it together? Make one big festivity. So you see that you don't mix. So he made one week like this. So the Gemara says, no. Maybe the reason why he made, really you could mix a festivity. But one festival with the other festival. One joyous occasion with the, you could you add a mix. The reason he didn't was because he, he, they finished it earlier. And once you finished it, you can't wait. It's done. They, want, they need to sell it. They have to have the grand opening immediately. You don't push it off to a later date. So you have to do it immediately. And so, so how do you know? It's because you don't mix them. So the Gemara says, no. That's true. If you finish it, yeah. Maybe Taket got, fin got finished earlier, the building was done earlier. But they could have left over one part which is not considered holding back the building. In other words, you're not supposed to delay finishing if you're able to finish it. But could be, but why didn't they f complete the temple building and leave over one little thing so they don't have to make the celebration yet? Why would they leave? And it's not considered part of the building that they're leaving over. And what should have they left over? They should have left over the, 
the spikes on the roof. That's not part of the building. In other words, he should have added the spikes later and then he can make the celebration later. If he didn't, there's a sign that you don't mix one simcha with the other. Simcha, so you made one joy with the other. That's what the Gemara says. So Tosva says, you see from here, that in the first temple there was also a, because the, the Shlomo Melch is the first temple. They, they, if you're going to say like the Aruch, that what, they didn't have, they didn't use the Kalyaka'a Oirev, they didn't use the spikes there, then, then what's the whole discussion? It's because you see that they did use it. So Tosfus answers, it could be initially, they, that, that's true, that in the first temple they didn't have it. If so, why does the Gemara talk about the first temple putting on the Kal Yoyev? Could be, he says, in the beginning they put it on. Because he didn't know he didn't know if the birds would be kept away on its own. But later when he saw the holiness of the Beis HaMikdash was so intense, and you don't need it, he removed it. So Shlomo Melech removed it later. So again, it's true, the first temple didn't have it because it was removed, but initially it was put on these spikes. Atosis. So Rabbi Yonas and Eibshitz asked the question, why, why did they put it on and take it off? I mean, Tosus says the reason is because he saw the holiness, it doesn't require it, but he says, what, what's this deeper reason why he put it on and took it off? See, he gives a, t- a total opposite explanation. But it goes right into what we were talking about earlier. He says like this, and this will explain why David HaMelech prepared all the metal. He says the only reason you're not allowed to use metal in the Beis HaMikdash is because you're not allowed to bring something that's going to destroy the temple and put it into a Beis HaMikdash. It's, the, it's, it's clashing with the temple. The force that's destroying it cannot be put into it. He says, but if, you're gonna, if you know the temple is going to last forever and it's not going to be destroyed, then there's no problem putting steel. You're now allowed to bring the enemy in. But if it's not an enemy, because the base image is going to last forever. He says, when David the Melech initially was, 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 uh, was, was preparing the materials, he thought he's going to build it. If David the Melech would have built it, it would have lasted forever. It was only because David didn't build it and Shlomo built it, it was destroyed. I don't know from where he knows that, but that's what he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. He brings a proof to that when that the, that's why the, 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 the doors of the Beis Amigdash were never destroyed. It sunk in the ground and not destroyed because Dov and the Melech made the entrances. I mean, he prepared that. He made that. Because when David made is eternal. So Dov and the Melech was planning to build it. If you're building it, he, can, he, was, he was able to put steel in. He doesn't say he would have put it into the building, but at least he, would have, he used it for the, for the roof. The spikes for the roof, he, he definitely used it. Then Shlomo, but in the end, David didn't build it. That's where he prepared the steel. In the end, Shlomo Melech went and Shlomo Melech built it. Now Shlomo Melech would have built it. Ah, now Shlomo Melech built it. It would have also lasted forever. There was no reason for the base nation not to last forever. But the reason it didn't last forever because it says that Shlomo Melech sinned that the night that he had the celebration for the temple, that very same night he was marrying the daughter of Pharaoh. And it says God got very upset about him and sent an a angel, Gavriel, down and put a reed in the, in the Mediterranean and it started gathering dirt and it became a shoe and that's the, uh, the Italian coast, uh, the shoe of Italy, which later is going to be Rome that's going to destroy the temple 800, 900 years later. So you see that was the sin of King Solomon that brought about the basement should be destroyed. So initially when he built it, he put, he put the steel on it. There's no problem putting steel. But then when he realized that he sinned, 
and he realized that the temple would be destroyed. He had to remove it because once, once you, uh, you're now allowed to bring the destruction force into the temple. But that's what he says. But I, at least you see from there the one idea. That he learns the same like the Lubavitcher Rebbe. That what? That once, that the only problem with steel is as long as there is a possibility that it's going to destroy the temple. Again, he doesn't talk explicitly about the third temple, but it's clear from his words that as, as soon as there is no problem with a destruction force, because steel won't be bad anymore, it can be used. Of course, the Rebbe is learning it so much deeper that it's, it's, it's the essential power of steel that's the whole power of the third temple. It's the transformation of the lowest of the low. And the steel is definitely an integral part of it. And the Rebbe learns it's not only in the roof, it's going to be in the entire base of it. it's going to be built with steel. And that's the, one of the reasons why it's an eternal, even on an on a, on a engineering thing, the reason it's going to last. It's going to be a durable base of is because of the steel. And this is all related to the idea that in the, base, in the end of days, Asav is already fixed, and Asav is part of the of the building of the base of English, and I think we've seen that quite a lot in the last couple of years, and let us hope that we get to see the complete fruition of it and the conclusion of it, and we get to all see the most magnificent building ever to be built, and primarily it's, besides it being the most beautiful city in the world, Jerusalem, as it says, the beauty of Jerusalem is going to be just crazy, and the splendor of the temple, and so on and so forth, it's going to be eternal and ever and ever, and the joy is going to last forever and ever. And we're going to have our Va'asili Mingdash V'Shachanti B'Seicham. I'll make for me a holy a sanctuary and I will dwell amongst you. We will have it completed to its fullest. May we see that now. Thank you. whole lot of books. Baruch Hashem. Okay.